I would like to welcome all of you who are joining us today here online, New Life Christian Church. And if you are, happen to be joining us for the very first time today, my name is Joe Williams and I am so glad that we get to be worshiping together in this moment right now. I'd like to remind all of you that this is our last weekend where we are online only. Next weekend, we are gonna regather again for all four of our regular worship services. That'll be Saturday evening at 5 p.m. That's also gonna be Sunday morning at 8.30, at 10, and 11.30. I want you to know that New Life Kids will be available on Saturday evening at 5 and on Sunday morning at our 10 a.m. service. And I hope that all of you are planning to be there. I look forward to seeing all of you. Now, if you would, go ahead and grab your Bible, and I want you to go ahead and turn over to the 14th chapter of the book of Romans. That is in the New Testament. And if you've got a bookmark or if you've got one of those ribbons in your Bible, this would be a good place to put that because we're going to be spending... Um, several um, moments together this, this day and next weekend for sure in Romans chapter 14. So that will help you find it a little bit easier. Romans chapter 14 is one of those chapters in the Bible that has been on my preaching radar since the very beginning of, the, of this pandemic that we've been in. Going all the way back into March, I was saying to myself, you know what, um, Romans 14 is probably gonna be one of those passages that I'm gonna be spending some time with our congregation. And you know, as I've watched our society react to the many challenges of 2020, and as I've watched Christians, as I've watched the church respond to many of those challenges in 2020, I knew in my heart that Romans chapter 14 has some powerful truths and some guidance that the church desperately needs, what we desperately need as we navigate these strange times that we have been living in. Now, I don't think anybody would argue with me or disagree um, when I say that, that uh, there is a lot of disharmony in our society today. Would you agree with that? 2020 has been full of conflict and it's been full of division. And let's be honest, 2021 has not gotten off to a great start when it comes to those things now, has it? I still can't believe that some of the images and some of the videos that I have seen over the past couple of days of what has transpired at our nation's capital um, actually happened and the fallout that has come from that. Politics aside, I never thought that I would see the day when American citizens, for any reason at all, would smash windows, bust through police barricades, and forcefully enter our Capitol building. And if that wasn't bad enough all in of itself, lives were lost on that very day. Now, it's not pertinent, nor is it my intention to stand up here today and speak to you by listing off all the things that are dividing us as a nation. We all know what those things are anyway. I don't need to state them. But what is pertinent and what is my intention is to address with Scripture what I believe to be a potentially dangerous situation that threatens the unity of the church. And I'm not saying just right here at New Life. I'm talking about the unity of Christians across our land and even around the world. And that is this. There's a danger of allowing what divides our citizens and our country to cause division and strife among God's family. Did you hear what I said? I believe there's a potentially dangerous situation that threatens the unity of the church, and that is 
the danger of allowing what divides our citizens in our country to cause division and strife among God's family. You know, I'd like to share with you a psalm that you may not be familiar with. It's Psalm 133, verse 1. It simply says this, How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. You know, across the pages of the Bible, we read many times over that it is God's desire for his children, his family, that's us, to stand together and not let the things that divide the lost also divide the saved. 1 Corinthians 1.10, Paul was speaking to the church and he said this, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. Now that is a loaded passage. I could spend the whole time together just with those verses, but, but I just want to point out something. Paul is not suggesting that we turn into a group of robots who have all been programmed the same way to respond exactly the same way about every situation in life. That's not what he's saying at all. But what he is saying is that Christians stand together. They don't let disagreements, they don't let opposing opinions that have nothing to do with salvation at all, they don't let those things divide them or to take their eyes off the main thing. I believe that the church today across our land is flirting with a very dangerous season of heels dug in opinions, which causes strife and conflict among brothers and sisters in Christ. Battle lines have been drawn among the worldly and they've also been drawn among the godly and it threatens the unity that God desires for his church. And that is what brings us today to Romans chapter 14. And for those who have ears to hear, this chapter of the Bible, it contains the proper guidance for us. Not the guidance in answering questions about things like voter fraud, or which political party holds the better vision for America, or the correct thinking when it comes to COVID-19, or the cure for the racial division that exists in our land, or the answers to our recovering economy, or illegal immigration, or any of the other divisive aspects of our nation today. No, the Romans 14 does not hold the answers to that. But Romans 14 offers you and me today the proper guidance in how the church can maintain unity in the midst of such opposing opinions. Now let me ask you just a question. I really want you to think about this today. Does it shock you when a brother or sister in Christ that you go to church with, that you've known for a long time, has a drastically different opinion than you do? Now let me just let that sink in. I really want you to dwell on it. Does it shock you? Does it bother you when a fellow brother, sister in Christ has a drastically different opinion than you do? I mean, when both of you observe the exact same situation, but you walk away with completely different impressions and completely different conclusions than each other. Does them having an opposing opinion, an opposing point of view, cause you to think less of them as a follower of Jesus. Now, I know that these are very pointed questions, and they're supposed to be, but I really want you to think. Let me ask you a, even a little deeper question. When you see a brother or sister in Christ who sees something completely different than you, 
do you really deep down inside wish that they would just go find another church? Do you perhaps quietly, or maybe some of you not so quietly, think to yourself, anyone who claims to be a Christian but voted for a candidate that has a letter D by their name doesn't have a clue what it means to be a real Christian? Or have you ever pulled into the church parking lot and saw a Make America Great Again bumper sticker on somebody's car and you muttered under your breath, what a hypocrite. No real Christian could ever support a president who talks like that. Or has somebody in our church or some Christian friend of yours ever posted a picture or made a statement on on Facebook uh, about something that you completely disagreed with? And then the next thing you know, you're starting a, a conversation online for everybody to see, and that conversation includes some very harsh words. And when you're both done, you're questioning if, if, if the other person is even truly saved or not. Because how can somebody like that come to such conclusions? Do you know any of your Christian friends who thinks differently about mask wearing, whether you should wear one or maybe you shouldn't wear one. Does it, does it make any of you wonder how strong of a Christian that person is if they see it differently than you? Perhaps one Christian believes that the Christian thing to do is to wear a mask um, whether it's necessary or not. However, another Christian comes to that same conversation and they believe that no, mask wearing is a sign of persecution or it's unhealthy or there's some other reason and they're not going to do it. And now these two Christians all of a sudden see each other through a completely different set of lenses than before and both of them question the commitment to Christ as the other one. The the mask wearer thinks of the non-mask wearer that they don't understand what the Bible teaches about loving your neighbor as yourself and somehow has some disagreement with science and then the non-mask wearer thinks that the mask wearer is weak and has surrendered themselves to fake media or government control or some other reason. Now, neither one of them accepts each other as genuine followers of Jesus any longer. You know, I could give you a lot of examples of opinions that divide brothers and sisters in Christ today, but you know, everywhere I turn into the Bible, I am reminded that in God's eyes, these kind of divisions should not exist among his family. You know, as you read through the Old Testament and the New Testament, you're going to come across civil wars and family fights of the people of Israel. And almost every local church that is written about in the New Testament had divisions within their church that the apostles had to contend with. You know, if you look at the Corinthian Christians, they were divided over human leaders. And some of the members of that church were even suing each other. You know, if you look in the book of Galatians, you're going to see that in that church, in those churches, there were Christians who were biting and they were devouring one another. If you look in, in the, the words written in Ephesus or Ephesians to the Christians at Ephesus in Colossians, those Christians had to be reminded multiple times of the importance of Christian unity. You know, you look at the church in Philippi, there were two women in that church who were at odds with each other and it was almost ready to split the church over their odds. You know, unfortunately, even today, we have similar problems with what somebody might refer to as a gray area or an opinion. You know, that area of life that is not clearly right or wrong for the believer. 
Now, you know, if you examine Scripture and you use a little common sense and, and some Christian depth, you, you know there are things that the Bible clearly condemns. And there are other activities that we know are absolutely right because the Bible absolutely commands them. Those are actually the easy ones. But when it comes to areas that are not so clearly defined in Scripture, we find ourselves needing some other kind of guidance to reach the conclusions that perhaps God would have us reach. And that is what lands us today in Romans chapter 14. Because in Romans chapter 14, Paul will give us some principles that will help guide us in how we are to navigate what I would call these gray areas, these disputable matters, these things that we would call non-essential these things that don't have any bearing on somebody's salvation, but they often cause great disunity and disharmony within God's family. So we're gonna read some of Romans chapter 14 in just a moment. And when we do, you're gonna learn that Paul is, is sending some instructions to the church in Rome. And as he's talking, you are gonna learn that this church has been divided into two different groups. Paul's gonna refer to some of the Christians as weak, and he's gonna refer to other Christians as strong. And we're gonna get more into that in just a little bit. What, is it, what did he mean exactly by weak and strong? But just know he is writing to a church that he has divided them up between weak and strong Christians in their faith. And although we don't know everything that was going on there in the church of Rome, we don't know all the divisions there, Paul will mention conflicts about eating meat. Yeah, that's right. Conflicts about eating meat. There are conflicts about observing special holy days, and there is conflict over drinking wine. You see, back in this day when Paul was writing to the church, the church was made up of Jews who had converted to faith in Christ, and the church was also made up of Gentiles who had converted to Christ as, as well. Jews and Gentiles were about as opposite of people as you could get. The Bible documents well their differences. So you have Jews and Gentiles, both who were coming to know Jesus, and they had to figure out, how are we going to be the church together? How are we going to be unified under the lordship of Jesus when we have so many different opinions about life and practices and activities? At the core of the conflict, at least it seems what Paul is addressing in Rome, had to do with the observance of, of, of Jewish law. And so he says that the weak ones among you, he's probably referring to those Jewish Christians who could not bring themselves to abandon their Jewish customs that they had known all of their lives. What we might refer to as the old covenant or the old law that involved eating certain foods and you couldn't eat these foods and observing special days and doing certain rituals and it was all part of. And, and I, let's be honest, being a Jew in Bible times was more than just a religion, it was like your nationality. And when these Jews became Christians and they were released, in fact, a lot of Romans is all about this, how they were released by the yoke of the law, it wasn't an automatic thing. It's not like, oh, we're following Jesus now. Now we don't have to do this. We don't have to do this. We don't have to do this. No, no, no. A lot of that came with them. And the Jewish Christians had a hard time separating their nationality and what they've always done since they were children and follow Christ. And Paul refers to them as weak. And then you have what he refers to as the strong. And those were mainly, as we can deduce, mainly Gentile Christians. Those who had no desire, felt no obligation to obey the law. And let's be honest, why should they? 
They weren't raised like a Jewish person. They didn't observe special days and holidays. They ate whatever they wanted. Why should they change that? So can you see the conflict that is brewing in the church? You had one group that thought to be a Christian, you had to also keep all of these rules. And you had this other group says, no, we're Christians, we're free in Christ to do whatever we want. And Paul refers to these groups as weak and strong. But see, here's the really sad part about what's happening in the church at Rome. These Christians were actually criticizing and condemning each other over these matters of opinion. You see, the weak Christians, these Jewish ones that wanted to obey all these rules, they were, they were actually condemning the, the strong Christians for not caring about their feelings and what they thought was right. And then you had the strong who were looking down on, on the weak because, because like, why should we do it like you do it? And they were dismissing them as maybe not being real Christians. Let's listen to how Paul addressed what was going on. If you look at chapter 14, verse 1, let's read it together. Paul says to the church, Except the one whose faith is weak, without quarreling over disputable matters. Now, this disputable matters, that, that is what we're talking about. Those are the gray areas. Those are the opinion things. We're not talking about the, the, the essential things here. You know, our doctrine, what we believe, and what is clearly spelled out in the Word. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about disputable things. He's talking about opinions. Except the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over your opinions. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not, and the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. It's clear when you read that, that Paul wants both groups to do what? He wants them to accept each other. But he seems most concerned here at the beginning with the attitude of who he refers to as the strong. And he starts really kind of condemning and, and, and driving the thinking with that group in verse one. Now again, who are the strong? Because I know it can be a little confusing. He's probably referring to those Gentile Christians who were most likely the dominant group in the church at Rome. That seems to make sense. It was that group who was looking down on the others for, for having rules and wanting to live by a code. And if we were to understand the point of this section, we have to have some understanding of what Paul means by whose faith is weak. He is not talking about Christians who don't have enough faith in God to be saved. He, that's not what he's saying. He's really talking about those Christians who are weak in conscience when it comes to their faith and what it allows them to do. So it's not like they're less saved than the strong. It just means that their conscience is weak, that they, 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 they don't allow themselves to be fully free to do what God has given them the freedom to do. So they're not lesser Christians. Their faith just doesn't allow them to do certain things. You know, I would say maybe a modern day example that would be very simple and actually a very real thing that Christians deal with today would be this question. This is kind of the same line of thinking. Should a Christian go to a theater and watch a rated R movie? What do you think? I know right now in our church family, I can tell you that there's some people that would say absolutely not. No Christian should do that. And then there are plenty of others that say, no, I think I can do that. I, I'm a mature Christian. Uh, the, the Bible doesn't say I can't do that. And so, you know what? I have freedom in Christ and, and I can use good judgment. And if I've got any questions, I can read a movie review. I can do some research. I, I have a mind and I can go do that. 
And this is things I've experienced in, in, in pretty much all the churches I've, I've served. You've got some Christians who say, you know, what, that, you know what, you shouldn't do that. And if you go see a rated R movie, I don't know if you're really a Christian. And then you have somebody else say, well, why are you judging me for going to see a rated R movie? Well, what's it to you? Why, why don't you accept me for who I am? So you have some in that discussion that puts others down and others that judge. Same kind of things happening in Rome. So Paul's first cure for this conflict is he simply says this, you've got to accept those even if they differ from you. Don't allow your differences over disputable matters in which we might consider gray areas to interfere with full fellowship. That is not a reason for why you would not consider them a Christian and why you would say, I don't want anything to do with you. Go find another church. He said, no, no, no. I want you to accept them. And Paul also says to what he would refer to the strong Christians, he says, listen, I want you to accept those without grudge, without, uh, you know, holding anything against them. I, I want you to welcome them and I want you to accept them. And that word that he uses with accept, it really has this full meaning of receive them into your group, receive them into your home, into your full reception, into your society. That's what that word means. So Paul says, look, you've got to accept one another. Now let me talk for a minute about these disputable matters. What are they exactly? Let's get some clarity on them. Obviously, Paul is not suggesting that we accept each other regardless of what is believed or practiced. That's not what he's saying. For there are certain false beliefs out there and practices that are condemned in the Bible, and we must stand on conviction and condemn them today. And there are some things that rise to the level where somebody in the church may have gone off on a wayward path and they actually come to the point where they are disfellowshipped from the body. Those things do happen. But that's not exactly what Paul's talking about here. Paul's point in disputable matters, he's saying they should not be the basis or the foundation for why you would or wouldn't accept that person as a full brother or sister in Christ. So what are these disputable matters? They are those things that are not addressed specifically in Scripture, and they don't have any bearing on somebody's salvation whatsoever. We are talking about matters of opinion. So in verse two, Paul identified one of these disputed, opinionated matters, and it had to do with eating meat. Paul distinguishes between those who only eat vegetables as a conviction and those who eat anything that they want. And most certainly this had to go back to Jewish customs, back we read in the Old Covenant and the Old Testament uh, uh, and the codes that they live by. No, there's no doubt in my mind that's what he's referring to. And for those of you who's like, I wanna learn more about that, I wanna learn, I wanna have a little bit more context of what's happening here, then I'm gonna send you to Acts chapter, nine, uh, Acts chapter 10 and I want you to read about Peter's rooftop experience with clean and unclean foods and how the Lord dealt with him on that subject. And then if you wanna go even deeper, go, go forward a few chapters in the book of Acts and look at Acts chapter 15, where the church was confronted head on with some of these types of things. And, it will, and you'll read in that chapter how the church came to the conclusion they did about trying to bring Jews and Gentiles and all these different opinions under one roof, the Lordship of Jesus. So if you're looking for a deeper dive, I would send you first Acts chapter 10 and then Acts chapter 15 after that. And then we come to verse three. Paul urges both of these groups, the weak and the strongs, to change their attitude towards each other the strong who eat meat should not look down on the weak who only eat vegetables. 
And when he says look down, he really means don't reject. Don't look at them with contempt. But the weak were also at fault because Paul says you're judging the strong. And when Paul says must not judge, he's really talking about don't pronounce doom on those who see it differently than you do. Later in this chapter, Paul is gonna say more about why we shouldn't judge others. But right here, Paul concludes verse three by pointing out the fact that God has already accepted the strong believer. Now think, so you have the, the weak that was really taking it out on the strong and vice versa. And Paul says, look, God is already at peace with this. Why aren't you? It's almost like saying, if God has already accepted somebody, it's clearly Paul is saying, God's already accepted them. Why are you having such a hard time accepting them? Accepting them? How, how could you come to a conclusion where they need to be rejected from the body of Christ when God has already accepted them? And, and the simple answer Paul is trying to point out, I think he'd want us to hear today too, is, is you can't. So from these three verses in Romans chapter 14, Paul is acknowledging that even as Christians, we are not always going to agree. When it comes to opinions, we are not always going to see eye to eye. So what are you gonna do with that? And what are you gonna do intentionally to maintain the, the bigger command of God to be a unified body of believers? Well, if you keep reading, look at verse four. Listen to what else Paul says to them. He says, who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. One person considers one day more sacred than another, and another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced, <coughs> excuse me, in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so as to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives our, uh, for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. Paul asked a very significant question in these verses. He says this, who are you to judge another's servant? Paul is basically challenging the church. He's saying, who do you think you are? Who died and made you the boss? Who died and left you in charge? And he's saying, by condemning others, we in effect are claiming to be that person's master. That's what he's saying. When you condemn and when you judge, you're basically saying, I'm your master and you need to act in such a way that pleases me. But then Paul says, no, 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 no. We only have one real master and that master is the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus is each of our individual masters and he makes clear that Jesus is the one who is going to judge and every single individual will stand or fall before Jesus. And since Jesus is the master of you, each of you, your primary concern would be to live in such a way and to think in such a way and to behave in such a way that pleases Jesus, nobody else. And when it comes down to our opinions, isn't Jesus the one whom we should be the most concerned is in agreement with us? 
When it comes to our opinions and our decisions, isn't it something deep down inside of us as followers of Jesus? Like, I don't care what anybody else thinks as long as Jesus thinks it's okay because Jesus is our master. Now, after Paul clarifies this issue of who our judge is, he then addresses the second disputed matter among the Christians there. And it was this tension between the weak and the strong. And it was a tension of, of, of should we celebrate these sacred days or not? And again, then these special sacred days, obviously it goes back to the Old Testament, the covenant, the Jewish Christians said, no, we're not ready to abandon these things that used to be so important to God and we need to keep them sacred. These were, you know, maybe festivals. It might've been the day of the Sabbath day. Now, as I read this text, I know Paul is not trying to correct their thinking, really. He's not trying to say this or that, or he's not really dealing with the issue at all, but he is challenging every believer to be firmly convinced in their own mind. In other words, he's giving the Christians in Rome the right to follow their own conscience about these matters of opinion. That's really what he's saying. If you go back and reread it, you're gonna see it. He's saying, listen, you gotta be firmly convinced in your own mind that this is right between you and God. No one's gonna judge you on that. His opinion matters as you've navigated and worked your way and you have the right to follow your own conscience. That's what he's challenging the church. And since each of us in that context are trying to please our personal master, Jesus, and if we are all living our lives and acting in such a way that is with sincere faith to our Lord and all we wanna do really in life is desire to please him, then who is someone else to judge us for that? Paul was telling the, the Romans that they may differ over specific practices, you know, whether, you know, honoring these special days or these festivals or eating meat, you know, they may differ on those things, but each group needs to recognize the sincerity in the other group and about their desire to serve their own master. So in verse seven through nine, Paul underscores and he elaborates on our relationship with our heavenly father, our own master. Paul points out that having a right understanding in our relationship with Jesus means that we understand what Jesus wants, what our, that our master is, is him, and, and, and we are living in obedience to him. And then he says, look, Jesus died on the cross. He was resurrected from the tomb so that he could be the Lord out of all of us. And if we've accepted Jesus, I'm telling you, if you've accepted Jesus as your savior, if you've made him the Lord of your life, then every one of us are obligated to live for him, for his glory and for his good. And now as we wind down to the end of these first couple verses that we're looking at this week, Paul asked two rhetorical questions that I think effectively rebuke the weak believer for condemning the strong, and it rebukes the strong for looking down on the weak. Look at verse 10. Paul says, you then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. You see how Paul corrected both groups in the church? The weak who judge and the strong who look down. Did you see how he corrected both of them? God, his conclusion is simply this. God is the one who sits in the judgment seat and we will all appear before him. So there is no need for any of us 
to set ourselves up as a judge and jury. And boy, isn't that a role sometimes we like to play? We set ourselves in that seat. We want to be the leader and the judge, and we want to point out what's wrong with the world, and we want it to be our way. And if it's our way, if you agree, then we're together. And we sometimes find ourselves, sometimes inadvertently, playing that role. But what I understand from what Paul is saying is we don't need to play that role because God is already in that throne. He's on his throne right now. We're all gonna stand before him. And because God has that part covered and because all of that is under God's control, we don't need to do that. We can actually be about the work of loving one another and accepting one another and doing what is right in God's eyes as we navigate these matters of opinion. So I, I take all of that and, and it means something quite significant to me in the world that we live in today. And the natural question is, how do we apply the things that Paul is instructing the church, which I think parallels us today, how do we apply that in our time and in our culture? I want us to begin applying this by acknowledging that life, the life we live today, our world, it definitely contains things that are cut and dry, things that we would call black and white. It does have those things, but it also contains many areas of what we would call gray. It seems to me, and I don't know if you agree with this or not, but life would be so much simpler if everything was spelled out in black and white. You agree with that? Wouldn't life just be so much easier? Here's it all, do this and you'll be great, and this you won't be great. But unfortunately, it will never be that way. That is not the kind of world that we live in. Life is filled with gray. And as Christians, I want to do what's right. I know you want to do what's right. And what is right is that thing that honors the Lord. We want to do, we should desire to do, and be all about what the Bible clearly tells us. But the Bible doesn't specifically address every single issue. I believe the Bible helps guide us and navigate to the right answer. But the Bible doesn't specifically address every single issue that we are going to come across in this world. And there are some things that cause us to scratch our head and we wonder, should I do that or not? Is that the right path or not? Is that right or is that wrong? And to complicate matters in that discussion, there are some Christians who are convinced that some things are right and others who are convinced that the very same things in these matters of opinion are wrong. So, as a Christ follower, we face ethical and moral decisions every single day, it seems. And for many of them, the Bible does give us clear-cut guidance, and then others, it doesn't. Let me give you an example of where the Bible gives us clear-cut cut guidance. You know what? Here's a, here's a great example. In the Bible, it is never God's will for us to get drunk. I hope you all know that. I hope at home when you're watching me, you're nodding. You say, I know that. The Bible clearly says it is not God's will. In fact, it is a sin to get drunk. We don't have to pray about that. We don't have to, you know, spend some time contemplating that. No, 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 no. It's his will that we live sober lives. And the Bible makes that very clear. That's cut and dry. It's not God's will for us to be controlled by anything. Not a food, not a drink, not a drug, nothing. The Bible's very clear. We are to be controlled by, the, by the, the Holy Spirit. That's what we are to come under. But the Bible does not give us clear commands and guides every decision that we face. And good Christians disagree about what might be wrong and what might be right about certain questions. And some Christians feel very strongly about their opinion 
And if you step outside of the boundary that I've set up about the way I think, then you are on the outs with me. Now back to our example that I just brought up. We know that drunkenness is clearly wrong. But is it right or is it wrong for Christians to use alcohol in moderation? Boy, now there's a, conver- there's a question right there that will, 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 will take you into deep conversations with other Christians deep into the night about what is right and what is wrong and, and what Christians to do. Do you see how that right there tends to want to shift over into the gray area? Yeah, we know that drunkenness is a sin, but does that mean that we cannot drink any alcohol at all? What about other disputable matters? Can we go to a movie theater and, and can we watch a rated R movie? Maybe some of you have been thinking about that since I brought it up just a moment ago. How about, can you go out dancing? Can you go to certain establishments that have uh, really clean events, but maybe other times they're not clean events? And can you go visit those kind of establishments during the clean events, but stay away from it during the, well, what will people think? Can you go out dancing and do all those kind of things? What about listening to secular music? I know even right here at our New Life family, there's so many different opinions about what Christians should or should not listen to, what we want our kids to listen to. Is it okay to listen to this? Is it not? How about this? How about working on Sundays? I know right now, some of you watching right now, you have this conviction. That's it. You feel it's your Christian conviction that no Christian should work on Sunday. That's a holy day unto God. It should be a day of rest and you don't do any work. You don't go to work and it should be a day of rest. But others of you like, I work every Sunday. It's a good thing there's a Saturday night service. You don't share that same conviction. What is right? What is wrong? Is it right or wrong to live in a really big house that costs lots of money that's very elegant? Or is it okay for a Christian to drive a really expensive car when, when others would say, you know, that money could be taken and used to spread the gospel around the world and feed starving multitudes all over the place? What about things that happen in churches weekly. I've been in ministry now for a good long while and I have encountered so many different opinions about what is right and what is wrong and I've seen Christians ready to fight to the death over their opinions. Here's one that uh, still is a major source of conflict in many churches. I don't believe in ours, but around around the world it is. When you come to church, you wear your Sunday best, which means you better have a pair of slacks on and a dress shirt and a tie and a jacket. You don't come into the church without those things. You ever been in a church like that? I remember when I first started preaching in ministry, I wouldn't even dream of coming to church if I wasn't in a full suit. I mean, tie and everything. And I had a whole closet full of suits because that's just what you did. That's the Christian thing to do. But then I started uh, preaching at another church who was kind of wanting to come out of that a little bit. And I remember I stopped wearing suits at that church. And I started to wear dress slacks and an unbuttoned shirt. And I thought I looked pretty good, to be quite honest with you. There was a guy in our church who absolutely hated that. And after a few weeks of it, he finally just couldn't contain it any longer. He just hated every second of it. And once he came up to me one Sunday right before I was to go up to preach, and he said this to me. He said, hey, Joe, did your wife kick you out of the house last Saturday night? He had this really serious look on his face. And I'm like, uh, not that I recall. Why? Because when you came to church, he had anger in his eyes. When you came to church last Sunday, you looked like you had slept the night before in a gutter. And then you got up there and preached. Man, that made me angry. Who are you to judge what I'm wearing? Especially when I think I look good. How dare you say that to me? And, and, and from that moment on, I'm just gonna be honest with you, I never respected him 
for the rest of my time there. He eventually got so upset about those kind of things, he left the church. Friends, these are these things that really come down to matters of opinion. But I bet you, even some of you watching this right now, listening to me preach, you're probably going, I'd be mad too. Because deep down inside, that's something that, that goes against. That's not what Christians do. You wear your Sunday best. And then it's like, well, that's debatable what your Sunday best is. Oh, we, we can find all kinds of things to argue about. Like, can you wear a hat inside the sanctuary? I know right now there's not agreement of, from among everybody that's watching me. Should coffee be brought into the worship center? Some would say, absolutely not. That is God's sanctuary. And others would say, oh, is that a thing? Is it okay to play drums in church, to have that drum that's... You would not believe how many conversations I've had during my ministry career over that very issue right there. The use of amplified instruments and worship styles. Oh, you want to see what Christians really think and what their opinions drive their decisions. Just talk about worship in church. I remember one church I was serving at, fairly traditional church, but we were starting to introduce different things. And, and, uh, but not drums, nothing like that, nothing crazy like that. And we had a vacation Bible school and we thought, man, we're gonna kick it up a notch and we had, had brought in some players and we were gonna have a live band for our vacation Bible school. We thought this was gonna be the most amazing vacation Bible school this church had ever seen. And right before vacation Bible school started, one of the guys in our church, he walked into the back of the sanctuary and he saw those drums and he bolted out of the back of the room. He found me in the church building. I was back in my office and he pointed his finger at me. He says, you get those drums, that bar instrument off of our stage in our sanctuary or I am leaving the church forever. I won't tell you what I was thinking at the moment, but boy, our opinions, it's really easy to make them the rule for everybody, and it should not be that way. You're right to, you have every right to believe what you want to believe and your conclusions, but is it right to, to attack another Christian because you have strong convictions over something that's clearly an opinion? Something that clearly has nothing to do with another person's salvation. These are all kinds of things. I could give you hundreds of things that Christians have strongly disagreed about over the years. One right now is the political culture of our society. You wanna see two Christians go fist to cuffs, bring up politics. In these verses that we've studied today, we see that Paul gave these Christians in Rome some guiding principles of how to navigate these conflicts over disputable matters. And I think they are so relevant for us today and I implore you to take them to heart. What did he say? He recommended to the church there in Rome that all you Christians welcome each other and you accept one another. Why? Because God has already accepted you. How come we have such a hard time accepting other brothers and sisters in Christ when God has clearly accepted them? You know what else Paul said? He said he recommended that you resist the temptation to look down on another Christian brother or sister or to, to, to judge them because they have a different opinion. Paul says, don't do that. He recommends, what else? 
why don't we let God be the judge? And he recommends that each of us have to seek out our own life, to, to live an outstanding life for our own master, which is Jesus. We are all going to stand at the throne room of God one day, and God will judge. So why don't we leave that important work to him and just being about the business of loving and accepting one another? Can I encourage each of us in our own church family, in light of everything that is happening in our society and how those divisions in our world want to become divisions in our church, can I challenge you to be a little bit more introspective in this moment right now and maybe ask some important introspective questions of yourself? I think we should examine ourselves and see if we have been looking down and condemning others in our heart over some kind of disputable matter. I think that's an important thing that their scripture should bring out of us. And I wonder, do any of us need to repent and stop trying to play God by playing master over other Christians' lives? Can we give those Christians the freedom to respond to God's leading in their lives even if they decide to choose a different course than our own? Are you able to do that? Maybe the second thing we should be examining in ourselves is to see if we are doing anything in our own lives where we have not applied the questions, is this something that my Lord wants me to do? Is this something that I can be involved in and bring honor and glory to God? This thing may have to do with how we spend our time or how we spend our money and we ask, is this a wise thing? Is this a glorifying thing to our Heavenly Father? This thing may have to do with what we do for recreation or what we choose for entertainment or what we choose for occupation. And is that glorifying our master? Maybe we become way too lackadaisical. Maybe we've taken our freedom in Christ way too far. All of us who are Christians have Jesus as our Savior and Lord. And I want you to know today that every single one of us will appear before his judgment seat. And if you're like me and I'm like you, we want God to be pleased with what he finds in us. I don't want to stand before my Lord and him ask me, Joe, why did you spend most of your adult Christian life condemning other Christians because they didn't think like you? None of us want God to be displeased by the fact that, that we didn't let him be the Lord of all. I think one of the best cures for conflict is just let God be God and let God be the judge of his servants. We're gonna stand our ground on things that are essential and then on things that are not essential. We're gonna have love and acceptance for our brothers and sisters in Christ. I think finally, as we let God be our own personal judge, we make it our goal in life to do what pleases him. Friends, when I started this message today, I, I said that I think that the church is in dangerous territory. I believe that with all my heart. I, I believe that there is a progressive version of our faith that is sweeping the land. And when it comes to that, no, we stand our, our ground on what the Bible says. But then there is this spirit of discord in our country. It's a spirit of cord, discord that is so prevalent every time you turn on the news or you read anything or you get on social media and it's the way the world is and that so desperately wants to creep into the church. So what divides the world wants to divide the church. And so my challenge to you as 
true, genuine followers of Jesus, to not allow what divides the world to divide your fellowship and acceptance of your brothers, sisters in Christ who you come to church with every single week and who you serve alongside of. And can you accept that person even if they voted for the other guy? Can you accept that person even if they've got a different vision for America? Can you accept that person even if they think differently about their own freedom in Christ? Friends, as New Life Christian Church, we are gonna stand our ground against progressive nonsense because the Bible clearly speaks truth. But in, opinions of, in positions of opinion, disputable matters, gray areas that the Bible maybe doesn't necessarily address and has nothing to do with somebody's salvation, then I think we can extend a lot of grace and humility and acceptance. How does the church come together in unity when we have so many different opinions? Well, I think Paul gives us the proper guidance and I challenge you to live them out right here. And I promise you, you're gonna be a happier person. And you're, when you let God sit on his throne and you, don't take the, you take the pressure off yourself to be that, you're gonna be a much happier person. In fact, would you join me in prayer right now no matter where you are in the world and let's just pray about this. Lord, I just come before you right now and I pray for the health of the church community in the world, not just right here at New Life, but in the world. Lord, we know the devil is a liar. Lord, he's a manipulator. Lord, the devil wants nothing more than to take the conflict of the lost and make it the division for the saved. And Lord, we rebuke him and we rebuke him by the authority of your word and the power of your name. Lord, that may that not be the case here. Lord, I, I pray for those of us that maybe have been a little too judgmental to relax. And Lord, for those of us that have been way too strict to relax. And we'd see each other as the way you see us, as accepted. Lord, that's our prayer. And we ask for your help because it's a hard thing to do. So Lord, we just end today by thanking you for your son, Jesus Christ, dying on the cross, raising back to life so that these guiding principles that Paul writes about mean something because it all begins and ends with you. You are God, you are judge, you sit on your throne, we are your servants, you are the master. So help us, Lord, in our strengths and help us in our weaknesses. In Jesus' name, amen.